Today is July 31st. It's 2016. Our message is called R and R Stories. So you can write that at the top of your notes. Uh, as Pastor Wade mentioned, it has been 201,480 hours since Miss Jennifer said I do. It's been 8,395 amazing days and 23 years. I, I do love my girl. Anybody that knows us knows how much I love Jennifer. Isn't she pretty? Look, her complexion's changing, right? Did you want to share this morning, baby? Did you, did you have anything you wanted to say to the congregation this morning? Oh, yes. And the good news is there's more to come. Uh, I think it's probably fitting that I tease you a little bit about the title and then we get into uh, some of the message. R&R can mean many things. Some of you hear the words railroad when I say R&R. Others, rest and relaxation. I can assure you there will be none of that today. Instead, uh, we're going to talk about restoration and reduction. And uh, maybe as we begin, though, It'd be fitting to tell you a little bit about what's happened in the last month. Uh, we've traveled some 5,000 miles, uh, been in touch with all of the One Association churches, but we focused on the Arising Church in Crystal Lake and also King's Harvest Fellowship in Baton Rouge. We have a few upcoming events uh, in Baton Rouge. We're going to teach discipleship classes at their request, and uh, the Arising Church will be in town this week because... They're going to Mexico with us. Amen. Hospitals, islands, and, uh, well, beautiful life-changing events. Uh, Pastors Slaughter, Mays, and Hutchinson, as well as Pastor Johnson, send you their greetings. The messages that come out of this church, the things that you post on Facebook, and the uh, testimonies that you give, they're all listening to daily. Uh, everywhere that I went, they're quoting the messages that were happening while I was gone. So I heard through the other pastors what an amazing time you guys were having. Uh, I wanted to share with you a testimony, though. I had the high honor of finishing a tabernacle series. The Arising Church was preaching about the tabernacles. Uh, that message was called Earthly Real Estate and Heavenly Views. Uh, the video is on their website. If you've ever wondered how every item in the tabernacle, every placement of furniture, every ring on every curtain, why it is written about in the Bible, that, uh, that's two hours of goodness on that. And plus, you'll see them and their excitement. You are not alone, church. We stand here in a converted warehouse storefront, but there are churches like us all over the world that are in love with the Lord. Uh, here's what's happening at the Rising Church. Would y'all like to hear about it? Yes. Okay. A multi-million dollar mega compromising monstrosity that masquerades as a church uh, swooped in and purchased their property. And uh, they were built out of uh, what looks like a shopping mall. It was a community center. And this giant carnal conglomerate Swept in, bought the property out from under them, met with the pastors and said, hey, no problem, you'll 
have six months or a year, you know. I mean, we're, we're all Christians here. And uh, so the Arising Church began looking for property, and uh, they received a notice that said they had 30 days to vacate or face prosecution. Um, because in the carnal kingdom, it is not the Christian kingdom. I want to warn you, not everything that has a steeple on it or has a six-foot-tall icicle selling you insurance for your soul is truthful or godly. And it doesn't matter how many millions of people love it or support it. You need to test the spirits. In fact, if you wanted to know more about that, this has been happening so long that in the 8th century B.C., you could read in 1 Kings 21 about Naboth's vineyard. And that would be all I would need to tell you along those lines because Naboth's vineyard is a story of Ahab who wanted Naboth's property. And he he paid a price for it. He was the king of all of Israel, but he didn't act as God wanted. And he stole the man's choice vineyard. Well, we just saw that in Chicago. And faced with the choice of becoming bitter or becoming ingratiated to the Lord and excited, filled with gratitude that they now had before them a new challenge, I'm happy to say that the pastors embraced their challenge. They blessed. They did not curse. I'm a little bit like an angry father. Somebody's kicking around my kids, but they've done this with a smile. And uh, they went out and did something unusual. They bought a 4,000-square-foot tent. And um, in their 4,000-square-foot tent, they set it up on their property. And uh, we have some pictures of that, actually, I'd like to show you here. That is at the back of one of the pastor's homes, and uh, it seats almost 400 people, and uh, problem solved during the summertime, right? It was a good opportunity to teach on tabernacles. It's a resilient church. Uh, let's move through the next slide. I'll show you some pictures of them. They worship. They love the Lord. The top of the tent became their uh, projection screen, and they didn't slow down because it doesn't matter where you meet. This was the congregation. Look, on a morning when they weren't sure they were going to be able to meet, there were actually police threats and governmental officials that were saying this meeting could not occur. They came and interviewed people in the church while we were having the meeting. All of these people in Crystal Lake, a town of 40,000, still showed up for the meeting. And uh, the neat thing is God is shaping that congregation through uh, adversity. And, And they're overcoming so something else happened. Let's move forward in, uh, in our pictures. We had to go to court with the city. We had two different issues. One was in the city and one was in the county, and the two don't talk to each other. The city said, hey, your new building, the one that you've picked that you'd like to buy, um, it can't be a church. Uh, it's not zoned right and can't be a church. So this is the council, and uh, they gave us an audience, and... We did something that was not advised by the attorney. I mean, it was not a part of a legal strategy. We picked a young man, a middle-aged man, and an older man to stand up and share their testimony. Uh, All seven of the uh, council members were moved in their hearts. We got a unanimous decision to rezone everything. And uh, so we left that meeting feeling on top of the world to receive a, a subpoena to a hearing with the county Because the county filed an injunction. You cannot continue to have church on your property. So we had two issues. You can't have church at the tent. And you couldn't go to build a church in the city where you want to build it. In other words, the devil doesn't want churches. Does that surprise you? 
It doesn't mind those carnal monstrosities that masquerade as churches. They had no problem getting all the things that they needed. But a real church, one that's lit by the fires of the Holy Ghost, it's going to struggle. And that struggle shapes you and shapes your character. So after winning this, we went to the county court where we lost. There's an injunction. You'll be arrested if you show up and uh, have a service. In fact, tear down the tent or you'll be arrested. That's, that's, uh, that's difficult, isn't it? On your own private property. Don't have the right to hold the church service. Welcome to the communist state of Chicago, right? It's coming everywhere. Better get used to it. It's, it's happening everywhere. So what do you do? Your back's against the uh, Red Sea. Pharaoh's bearing down on you. I'm happy to say that the pastors committed themselves to pray. And in the council meeting, in this room right here, Sitting off just to the left, right out of the picture, is a really rough-looking guy. He only had one arm. He was uh, unshaven. Truthfully, you know, uh, looked a little rough around the edges. He was there to meet with the, ma- with the city about another matter. And after this was over, he, it would be his hearing. So he had to sit through all of the testimonies. And in sitting through the testimonies, God moved on his heart. So as the pastors were coming out of the meeting with the county, the, the one few days later that they lost, they received a phone call. And it was from a man who had attended this. His daddy was a Lutheran pastor. And he wasn't doing so good with the Lord. You may not be doing so good with the Lord, but it doesn't mean he won't do good with you. Amen. He said, I've got something called a no bar. It's a place where people can hang out that maybe we're alcoholics or, you know, they love the club scene, but they don't really want to do the whole alcohol thing. If you guys aren't too religious or too proud, it's like he didn't know him that well. I'd like to offer you it free of charge. Now, I had been talking to the pastors and they'd been talking to me about Moses' travels in the desert, about the tabernacle. That's what they've been focusing on. The Hebrew word for where God met with Moses in the desert is ahar, A-H-A-R. And it means on the other side. And the question is on the other side of what? Well, I don't know. But God's going to meet with you on the other side of your difficulty. You just got to keep going. The place that this man is offering, free of charge, its name is the other side. That's the name of the building. I want to tell you that the Lord is alive and well. Governments can make law against the church. They can... (laughs) Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. I want to tell you the position that they are standing in. And as I was sharing the testimony with our pastors here this morning, in 2 Chronicles 20, what we heard was that this scripture has had a great deal of meaning in this building as of late uh, as well. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and look at verse 3. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of Yahweh and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people uh, of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Did you see that Jehoshaphat set his resolve to seek the Lord? 
Well, the pastors in Chicago set the resolve, come hell or high water, arrest or whatever it may be, we will not be moved. That doesn't mean that their plans won't move when God moves. It just means that they would not be intimidated by anyone. So against legal counsel, against your better instincts, they shared testimonies instead of law. And their God fought for them. As you skim down in this passage, look at verse 12. This is the prayer of the real Christian. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power. Somebody say no power. no power. No power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. I know, we're in church. You're supposed to hear a great man of faith standing on a great platform at a great price to you. And hear how great he is and how great his faith is and why his God comes through for it. I want to tell you it's just the opposite. There are no great men of God. There's only a great God who moves greatly through broken, ordinary men. It was Jehoshaphat's brokenness that caused God to move through him. Lord, I, I, I can't fix this. It's such a mess. Only you could fix it. But they did something else. Verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones. Somebody say little ones. Stood there before the Lord. I'm telling you, church, in the coming flood, you have to stand your ground. It's not about your resources. It's not about your power. It's about your dependency upon Him. The arising church is learning that. You are learning that. King's Harvest Fellowship is learning that. Submission Ministries is learning that. New Life Fellowship is learning that. The churches of the One Association are all equally dependent upon the Lord. And you must be also. The words of prophecy in our service this morning all had to do with letting go of the life that you've planned for yourself. Letting go of your circumstances and grabbing on to what God has for you. This is the mystery of the gospel. You cannot add Jesus to your life and expect it to work out okay. He did not come to make you a little less sinful or a little, as we'd say in Louisiana, more better. He came to take dead men, monstrous sinners in the hands of God and change them by a new life into sons and daughters, saints in the kingdom of God. It's going on all over the world. As we move forward through this message, I want you to know that one of the leading men of the arising church, I believe he'll be a future elder, a man named Mark Morrison. Some of you have met him. His first introduction to life-changing ministries was one of our teenagers rebuking him. And the man was so humble, he listened. And you know what? He's mastered the subjects that they were speaking about. And the next time our teenagers see him, uh, I think he will have a scriptural uh, sandwich for them. He shared with me an observation about the book of Chronicles, and it is the inspiration for this message. But where we need to begin today is in Ephesians 3. Say there when you were there. If you showed up this morning for a slick presentation, some greasy grace and sloppy agape, if you walked through the doors hoping to be entertained from parking lot to parking lot, not only do we promise you or make no promise that that will happen, we'll go the other direction. I promise you it will not happen. 
This ministry is about putting you on a collision course with the loving, mighty, holy, tender, compassionate king of the universe. I have met him. In the room today, I'm going to be honest with you. I can feel in the congregation of the saints a bunch of things. One is there is love and there is excitement in here, and I'm thrilled about that. There are also some deeply bitter waters in this room. Some of you are drinking the consequence of your sin and other people's sin. And it's yucky and it hurts. I want to offer you hope today, but we're not going to sugarcoat it. The only way that you ever see change in your life is to face the fact that every problem in your life is the result of your sin and somebody else's. And repentance is the only answer. Listen, if you are sitting in this congregation today and the words bitterness stick in your crawl, if your first reaction is, I'm not bitter, obviously. Harboring bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's only going to hurt you. And our king is able to change this. Okay, I did not walk in here and plan to speak about that. The Lord spoke to me about it during worship. I want to see you free. See you full of power. See you full of destiny. And I'm going to tell you, if you're still sitting here, there's time. There is time. Amen? Are you in Ephesians 3? Ephesians 3, 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Whose power? His power will have to straighten you out, set you on your feet. His power will do it all. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. I want to talk to you about hidden things revealed. We're going to keep reading this passage. But I'm going to show you some things in the scripture that are not immediately evident because there are some things in your lives that are not immediately evident. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to properly diagnose somebody else but your own life? I mean, the, the doctor that has, or the patient that has himself as his doctor, uh, you know, being treated by a fool, it, it, it's a problem. We can often see clearly what somebody else is doing wrong, and we can be doing the same thing and not even notice it. Am I the only one that's done that? You ever been mad somebody in front of you was swerving, driving too slow, they're in the fast lane, and uh, they're going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit, and you pass them, and it's uh, like, uh, they're texting, right? And you're mad they're texting? Then you get a phone call, and you're like, ah, what's up? You know? You're mad they're texting, but you're on the phone. We do this kind of thing all of the time, and, and, and it's common enough that we don't even notice it. So praise God for the Word of God. Hidden things will be revealed today. Continue with me in verse 9. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, who's the church? You are. The church is not the building. It's not brick, steeple, stained glass. The church is you. So now through you, 
The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Your life is supposed to tell a story. What kind of story is it telling? Because it's supposed to display the wisdom of God. Do you make God look wise? Do you make Him look powerful? Do you make Him look like the King of the universe? Your life is supposed to share a message with the heavenly powers. According to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Him and through faith in Him, say faith in Him, Through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom, with confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. Listen, if we can grab hold of what God is sharing with us today, with what His precious Ruach HaKodesh, His Spirit of Holiness, is in this room to share with us, you should walk away with freedom. You should walk away with courage and confidence. Is there anybody here that doesn't want those things? Look, I've seen the bumper stickers. Life is wonderful. Business is terrific. People are great. You know, it ought to say liar right next to it. It doesn't matter what you project. I've seen your Facebook pages and I notice the disparity between the person you are online and the person you are in reality. It's the same kind of disparity between the person that shows up on Sunday to church and Monday at work. I get it. We're diseased stock. There's a problem in the human race. But Jesus Christ is the solution. And not just knowing His name. Not just attending a place where He's admired. The total revolution of your life by Him. The upending, the the losing of yourself and grabbing hold of Him. And that's what we want to speak about this morning. Look, could anybody just be honest in the house of God? I won't set a mic out here for confession hour. Or hours. Could, could we just... Anybody having a rough month? Look at that. Look around you. Keep your hands up. Don't be pansies. Cowards don't enter the kingdom. It doesn't surprise you that in a spirit-filled, uh, amazing church that's affecting 31 countries, does it surprise you that more than half the congregation feels like they're having a rough month? I'm going to tell you, I'm concerned when, when the congregation's not having a rough month. Because we're people that are at war. And in war, there's propaganda. There's misinformation. There is psychological operations. Listen, I, I want you to know that not every thought that goes between your ears came from you or should be entertained by you. We are supposed to take captive our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. I want to share with you some unusual biblical stories. Okay? Go to Genesis 5. Say, there when you were there. In Genesis 5, Genesis chapter 5, come on, get there. Don't you quit on me. We just started. We're two hours from prime. We drove more than 5,000 miles in the last few weeks. And uh, last night was the first night we slept in our own bed in the month of July, which is not all that unusual for us, to be honest. But I got to tell you, it was good to be home. It's good to be in a worship service. It's good to be with our family. It's good to see that the family's growing. I I miss y'all. I love the, the churches everywhere. But 
Not like I love y'all. It's just different, you know. We don't have enough English words for this. You ever tell us, I love chocolate, but I love you. You know, I mean, it's, I, don't know, I don't know how to say it. I just want you to know that I'm more at home sitting right over there than anywhere else on the planet. And the other side of it is, I don't think it would matter whether it was that spot or some other place on the planet as long as we're in community. This is what God's called us to. You know, people go their whole lives longing for this and never see it. Are you in Genesis 5? This is the written account of Adam's line. Do you see that? Wow. The written account of Adam's line. You bored yet? This chapter chronicles ten generations of human beings. Can anybody name back to the sixth generation in their family? Right? You, you got a hard time getting past grandpa, don't you? And if you get to great-grandpa, you're a step ahead of your neighbor on your left or right. If, if you get to great-great-grandpa, now we're not even sure whether you're telling the truth. Right? <laughs> ten generations of human beings. First ten generations uh, of human beings. The first ten generations that lived on the planet. Uh, let, let's go to that slide. I want you to see this. Uh, well, we probably need glasses, huh? Very first one, Adam. Adam surprisingly means man. <laughs> there were no other people on the planet, so God said, Adam, you're the man. No, seriously, you're the man. <laughs> you know, like the, the only, the man. Seth, appointed or compensated. Enosh, mortality, Kenan, owner, possessor, purchaser. You can see the, the route we're going with this. Watch. I'm going to read you their names as they're defined. Man appointed or compensated with mortality, the owner, possessor, or purchaser, the blessed or praised of God, descends, initiating teaching, dedicating. His death brings or sends a strong, powerful, and vigorous comfort, rest, and peace. Now, what does that remind you of? Does that remind you of the uh, story of the gospel? That man is now subject to death and so the owner, possessor, or purchaser, the blessed, praised of God, is descending, teaching man, training man, dedicating man. His death brings or sends a powerful comfort, rest, or peace. Now, let me ask you something. When we're looking at the scriptural text, every one of these are the names in order in Genesis 5. Consider that if your name was Jared, you'd be like, I got screwed. (laughs) Even my name means I'm falling down. You're probably not just, hey, y'all, you know what my name means? Falling on my face. But it was a part of the story. Now, do you honestly believe that Jewish men who did not yet receive Jesus, I'm speaking of Orthodox Judaism, manipulated Genesis 5's ten generations of human beings in order to tell the story of Jesus? Or do you think that God was writing a story through their lives that they may not have had the proper perspective to see? Well, if He did it in the first ten generations of men, do you think He stopped in the eleventh? I mean, sure, he did that with Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah, but, but not, uh, not, not with Alex. Really? God just gave Alex a son. Another son. And that child was born to someone else. 
but will grow up as his son. Do you really think that God is not moving around the chess pieces to bless your life? You know what? One day, everybody looks at their circumstances and says, mine are harder than yours. Well, amen, that's part of the story. I hope they are. If, if, if they're not harder sometimes, then how do we have... What if your name is Methuselah? Hey, guys, where's Methuselah? I don't know, but his death brings her sins, you know. I mean, would you protect him or kill him? I don't know. We don't know what his death brings or sins. I mean, this is... You thought his name was just hard to pronounce. I mean, how about living with that? Okay? Let's do this. Go to Genesis 29. Say there when you were there. Come on now. All you got to do is turn to the right in your Bible. In Genesis 29 and in Genesis 30, beginning with Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel, and man, what a raw deal that story is. You know, one of them is beautiful, and you got to love the commentary in this verse, lovely in form. Bible's honest, you know. What does that mean, beautiful and lovely in form? You know, why are you all so quiet? I didn't say it. God put it in his inspired word. You know, somebody, Moses had to write that. And, and he's writing about a great, 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 grandma, you know. Boy, she was built. <laughs> I mean. And those of you who think Moses just had a problem, no, Moses was honest. He said the same thing about Joseph. He's handsome and built, you know. Um, the Bible, if nothing else, is honest. And in the middle of all of this honesty, what you see is you see that 12 sons are born. I want to show you that slide. Be number seven. So this is 12 children. Listen, they're born to four women. Okay, think about that. And this is the order of their birth. Who's going to have a baby next? Well, I mean, they competed for this. (laughs) You thought your marriage was rough. I mean, one woman's got to go get mandrakes to... um, Get the opportunity to participate in building Israel. And um, who could know who's going to be born next and what he should be named? Okay? They're in an all-out competition to produce Messiah. Reuben's name means, behold, a son. Simeon, one who hears. Levi, joining. Let me read them to you in the order of their birth. Behold, the son, one who hears, is joining. Praise the Lord. My vindication in the struggle, fortune, favor, and troops. A happy reward. The precious dwelling place has been added by the son of the right hand. Who does that tell a story of? You know, I don't know whether you think this is trickery. I don't don't know what you think about it, but this is the order of their names and the most common accepted meaning of their name. You know what... um, Reuben's mama was thinking, though, I am miserable. And the Lord has seen my miserable, pathetic, awful existence. And she said, I have a son. It's at least a, a flower in the middle of the paved parking lot, right? She had no idea that her miserable struggle was producing the beginning 
of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know where your struggle is. It might be in the midst of misery. Or how about being named something like um, Dan? You know, the judge, listen to my plea, the vindication is, is, is another way to say this. What does that mean? Does that mean you're judged or you're the one doing the judging? Have you ever been in a situation and you don't know, am I being punished or am I just being disciplined as a son he loves? Is this because I sinned or is this just because we're in a sinful world? What difference does it make? It's part of the story and your life is not over yet. Let's stop the story. Uh, Behold a son, one who hears. End of story. Is, is that uplifting? Does, does that glorify God in any way? Not at all. You have to finish the story. Can anybody tell me what chapter they're on? You can't, can you? You know, maybe there's a cynic here. Says, I'm, I'm on my, my last chapter. Yeah, Abraham thought his life was near an end too. And at 138 years old, he had eight children. Yeah, with a third wife. How, how about that? You don't know when your last chapter is. Let's go to Numbers 2. Go to Numbers 2 with us. In Numbers 2, I'd like to see slide 8 if you don't mind. In Numbers 2, you find the tribal arrangement of Israel. When you're thinking about this, and this is not news to many of you who have been here a long time, consider this like a TV screen for a moment, like you're staring at a screen. Does anybody know what those little segments of light are called that are hitting the screen? Pixels, right? And now we like high-definition things. What's that mean? More pixels, right? Anybody have a camera that's 8 megapixels or 12 megapixels? or? Yeah, It, it means that there's more and more clarity, right? There are 603,550 men, not to mention women and children, not to mention those who are below the age of 20. We're talking fighting age men, 20 to 50, who are pictured here. And the order that they're put in puts Judah to the east, Reuben to the south, Ephraim to the west, and Dan to the north. It not only speaks a message, may he be praised as Judah, Behold the son, Reuben, doubly blessed Ephraim. He that judges has come, Dan. Not only does it speak a message, but it's an actual picture. You know, if the Bible tells you to to camp in the east, and that's due east, what is this? Something other than east, right? Something, what about over here? What about all the points of the 360 degrees that are not due east, due west, due north, and due south. This means that when these people line up, they have to be camped in the east if you're with Judah, Issachar, or Zebulun. You know what they did? They determined a width. Could you stand with me, Elder Steve? Could you stand with me, uh, Pastor? At some point, standing shoulder to shoulder, and they're facing their compass direction... If we stack on too many people, it's now uh, east, uh, northeast, or southeast, and not due east. So they determined a fixed width. That's interesting, isn't it? When you determine a fixed width in all four directions, 
can't go any wider than, say, 10 people, but we have numbers of people here, then you can stack them in columns. You know what it makes? It makes a perfect cross. Mm-hmm. See, their lives told the picture with words, uh, told the story with words, and their lives literally formed a pixelized picture of God's mercy seat, His cross, where He would save mankind. That's incredible. You have no idea what your placement is doing. You think that you were put somewhere because God's angry with you. Maybe He is. But He doesn't have to stay angry with you. If He's angry with you, what was the cause of that? You know, I assure you it was not because you were innocent. I'm not sure how you got to be where you're at in the story. I just know that if you walk through these doors this morning, your story's not over. And theirs wasn't either. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Unless you think it's just an Older Testament phenomenon. Go to Revelation, the second chapter. Could we see slide nine? Anybody familiar with the seven churches of Revelation? These are the seven churches of Revelation. If you came into the port of Ephesus, which is symbolized by the number one here, the trade route would take you to Smyrna. And then from Smyrna to Pergamos. And from Pergamos to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. That is the natural trade traffic. Ephesus was first because it was a port city. Doesn't it make sense that if you came in traveling from any other country and you entered the port, that you would go to the port city first? Well, consider this. Ephesus was founded in 1200 B.C., okay? Smyrna in 1500 B.C., but Thyatira was only 300 B.C., and truthfully, Thyatira and Laodicea had both been overthrown and renamed. So we're talking about time frames of more than a thousand years and then name changes within the thousand years. And the seven churches of Jesus' day, when defined... Let's go to the next slide. Desired ones, death in the high citadel, a labor of love, the prince of joy, brotherly love, made a just people. That's incredible, isn't it? Do you get that? Consider something. He raised up foreign armies to invade existent places overthrow the city and rename it so that it would tell the message of Jesus. Do you really think He's not in control of your life? Maybe you need a name change. Maybe you need your regime overthrown. Maybe you were founded on the wrong principle. Maybe maybe you've been building something that doesn't tell the story God wants to tell through you. But it's not too late because you're sitting here. This place is not the salvation. We've just met the Savior. And I'm going to be honest, you ought to start to take note of those who live according to the biblical pattern. Philippians 3.17 tells you to take note of those who live according to the pattern. Do you know why? Because most don't. You know, what we see represented all around us as Christianity is word light. It's holiness light. And it is powerless. It's a form of godliness that denies the power of a changing life for the glory of God. Turn with me to Psalm 37, and we're going to grab what we would call an anchor text here. Are you all still awake? Look, I don't want to compare one church to another. That wouldn't be right for me to do. But if I were, I'm going to say those Yankees were a lot more fired up than you guys are. 
I mean, I, I don't want you to feel bad about it or anything, but, you know, they, they participated in the messages. It's not that we want you to feel less than or like maybe you should step it up. But um, I'm just saying, I thought the north was frigid and cold. I didn't know that the south was sleepy and lethargic. Did you come in here because things were going perfectly in your life and you wanted us to tell you that you're a champion and today was Friday? Because there's a clown already doing that. And he will take your money and he will tell you whatever you want to hear while his wife bats her eyes and makes up heresies. But in here, we actually care enough about you to challenge your actual position right now and also stand with you in the fight to watch it changed. Amen? Amen. So, Psalm 37, are you there? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're there. That's good. In Psalm 37, uh, verse 23, I want to show you this in the complete Jewish Bible, but you should read it in your translation. Adonai directs a person's steps. You need to know something about the word person there. Uh, it is, it's actually the word giver, G-E-B-E-R. It's been a nickname for my son for a long time. Giver doesn't just mean man. It's Strong's number 1397. It means a valiant man. It means a warrior. It means a courageous, a brave person. Adonai directs a valiant man's steps. You know why that's different? Because God is not particularly directing the life of a man who is in rebellion to him. That's what rebellion is. But if you are brave enough to follow the Lord's direction in your life, if you are valiant enough, what's the next part of the verse say? And he delights in his way. The reason I wanted to read it in this particular translation is who delights in whose way? This is a pronoun without an antecedent. Don't let that confuse you. I'm just telling you that we don't know whether God is delighting in the man's way or the man is delighting in the way that God has laid out for him. But I can tell you from personal experience, if you are brave enough to follow the direction of the Lord, you will not look back at your life in disappointment no matter how hard it gets. Do you think that Moses is disappointed that he got led out onto a peninsula and that uh, the Egyptian armies were, were crashing down on him? Do you think he's disappointed about that? Was he distressed while it was happening? Of course. Do you think Moses is, is disappointed, sad, looking at his life like it was a big mistake to get to Mount Sinai and trembling with fear? No, he met with God. A whole nation heard his voice. But when he got there, he was trembling with fear. Do you have the courage to follow the Lord? That's, that's, that's a good question because everybody says, Oh, yeah, Pastor, we, we're with Jesus. You liar. You, your words are with Jesus. Your heart, your body, your actions, nowhere near Jesus. Not for 99% of your week. It takes courage to follow the Lord. And the reason that it takes courage is you don't do what everybody else does. And not only that, you don't get to do what you think would be the best thing to do. If you don't tell yourself no to tell the Lord yes, then you are not with the Lord and you are devoid of courage. You know, cowards don't enter the kingdom. I, I know you don't hear that anymore because there are cowards preaching. 
So they're not going to tell you that cowards don't enter the kingdom. But of all the things that these pastors in this church are, we are not cowardly. The truth is we want you to go with us. But whether you go with us or not, we're going. That's, that's how that... You don't have to be on this flight. You can hop off if you want to. But we'd like to all make the same destination. There is a promise for those who are walking with the Lord and are, are valiant enough to do it. You will delight in the path that He lays out for you. So let me ask you. When the Proverbs say, there is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to destruction... Is your life in destruction right now? Is it, is, are you living out what the Lord has dreamed for you or are you in burned ashes? Because if you're walking with the Lord when you look in the rearview mirror, it's not with regret. You know what it is with? Delight. Delight. I can confidently say that the hardships that the Stevens household, the Piro's household, and the Sutherland's household have faced have shaped our character for what we must yet face. And I will not stand and brag about what we have done while refusing to do what He's told us to do. Instead, our past compels us to continue walking with the Lord. And therein lies a huge difference between what is being preached in many places, and what is being preached in true, powerful, amazing congregations around the world. Salvation is not an event. You say you got saved when you were eight because you raised your pinky in a crusade. God bless you. If your walk from that moment forward has not amounted to righteousness, then your salvation is worth nothing. It takes courage to follow the Lord. But He'll give you that courage. It doesn't come from you. Look at the second verse here. He may stumble. Who do you think that He is? Does God stumble or do you? I love that the Word interprets itself. He may stumble. The valiant man, the courageous man, the one who's walking with the Lord, he may stumble, but he won't fall headlong, for Adonai holds him by the hand. You are not holding the Lord's hand. The Lord is holding your hand. You you didn't grasp the hem of His garment and that is your salvation. He grasped you. Let me show you the difference. Is that okay? Gabe, hold my hand. Who was holding Gabe's hand? Was he holding mine or am I holding his? How does that work? Which one do you think has got a stronger grip on this? We say, if I could just reach out and hold his hand, if you'll just let him hold yours. With a man's wrist, you can put him anywhere you want him on the planet. There's only one other appendage that works that way. Church, Adonai will hold your hand. You know what that means? To have the God of the universe go, you're courageous enough to try and you're pitiful enough to be failing while you're trying, so I have mercy on you. I'm going to pick you up over that puddle. I'm going to pull you out of that mire. I'm going to stand you on better ground. You know why? Because I'm God and I get to. Who's going to tell Him no? Who's got an arm like God? Who's got a voice like God? Who's going to tell Him no? 
Because he's already standing on top of the adversary and he put you on top too. Do you know why? Because he's holding your hand. Oh, my. He orders and he directs and you are supposed to delight. The Hebrew word for delight means remain pliable. You know what that means? To remain pliable? It means, I thought the Lord said, go here. And I was going... And I realized that uh, it was mostly me who wanted to go here. I was kind of hungry, and fajitas were that direction. But I can clearly see now I was supposed to repent and go after prime rib. (laughs) Golly, Lord, I'm incapable of choosing a good direction. What was it? Uh, You're right. Lobster was over here. It means that you are constantly checking to see whether he's got hold of your hand. Not because you don't trust Him, but because you have given up in trusting in yourself. So let me ask you, Christian, as you sit here, do you have a great deal of trust in yourself? Do you count your pennies like David counted his men before he went to war? What are you relying on? Can you, like Jehoshaphat, say we have no power? To face this vast army? Or do you like, I got a heck of a, I got a master card. It is my master, you know. I got, I, I, I got this. You know, maybe you enrolled in Obamacare. And so now you, your health is perfectly federally taken care of. I know it's working well. Let me ask, what are you trusting in? And how has that benefited you so far? Because all of those bumper stickers, life is wonderful, people are terrific, business is great. I just drove 5,000 miles. If that's true, how can they all be so angry? How can they all be so unhappy? You want to make people mad? Drive the speed limit with a travel trailer. I crossed the speed limit in two directions constantly. I never stayed there, but I crossed it in two directions. Um, while we're on this subject, I'd like to talk to you about building monuments. Is that okay? Yes. Are you already worried, weary? Because no. we've just begun to scratch the surface of the word. Uh, I've got to tell you, I can't give you less than we gave the other churches. I mean, while I was gone, you guys, uh, y'all didn't join the seeker-sensitive movement, did you? Turn with me to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, pick up with me in verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14. And here comes verse 27. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. How many sons? And a bonus, a daughter. I thought I loved my boys till I had a girl. Everybody says you shouldn't have favorites. I do. Abby is by far my favorite. The others don't even come close. If they work their whole lives long, I'll love them about half as much as I love her. The daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. How many sons did Absalom have? Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 18. During the lifetime Absalom had, 
During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pair... <laughs> I can't speak today. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to whom? For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself. You love your own self. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom was known for his vanity. Absalom was a rebellious man who tried to win people's hearts through flattery. Absalom rebelled against God's plan in his father's life, rebelled against God's plan for his own life, and although Absalom had three sons, something evidently happened. Because at the end of this life, he said he had no sons. When you are not leaving a spiritual legacy because you are aborting it, there is nothing left for you but to build monuments in your own honor. And this is why the world is working to accumulate wealth. It's why the world is working so hard to build a name for themselves. They are not leaving the legacy that God called them to lead. leave. See, if your ministry is 5,000 deep, but you don't have five real sons that can do what you do, then your pride's going to have to be your building. Because it's the only monument you have, which is also why those men always put their name on the building. I don't want a monument out of stone. I want a monument that is a path of trusting in God, dependency upon Jesus Christ behind me, that when I'm at the end of my life, I can look back and delight that some of our children are doing well. This is the kind of legacy that Peter had, that John had. This is the legacy that we fight for, and we will not lose. Do you know why? We're not fighting with our power. We're fighting with His. The others can amass their riches. The others can hire their lawyers. But I have a counselor they don't have. I've been to court and won, and I've been to court and lost. But me and Jesus, we are the majority. Church, you need to gather your confidence. You know who else built a monument in his own honor? Turn to 1 Samuel 15. We'll be in 1 Samuel for just a second. So you're going to go to your left. If your fingers get tired, get your, just look at your neighbor and say, Help me. Help a brother out. In 1 Samuel 15, look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. Hey, what does God call turning away from him? When you fail to carry out his instruction. Hey, listen to me, Christian. You are not holy because you don't watch porn, although many of you do. You are not holy, Christian, because you don't say bad words, although if we sit in your car with you, I bet you do. You are not holy because you don't drink or smoke. I do both. You are not holy because of a long list of things that you don't do. You know what is holiness? When you carry out the instruction of the Lord. The church has substituted a list of things that they do not do because they don't have a list of things that they do. Saul did not do what God said. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. 
Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. While God is displeased with the man, the man is pleased with himself. While God is tearing the kingdom out of his hands, the man is building a monument to the kingdom that he's ahead of. Do you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the dear loved one sitting in these seats right now that is building a life that God wants to tear out of your hands because it is not the life that he wants you to have. Oh my God, that we should tear our clothes, pour ashes on our head and say, Lord, reveal your will to me. Because once he makes known his will to you, No matter what the obstacle, what Goliath stands in your way, you'll be happy that you faced him. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? But as long as we go our own way, as long as we do what we like and refuse what we dislike and claim to serve the Lord because we are not as unholy as the person sitting over there, Because we properly diagnose their life and improperly diagnose ours. How could God be pleased? I'm so often disappointed with my very existence. I don't know whether you have these moments, but I'd like to go off the record sometimes. I don't know, anybody in here been deposed? I hope no more of you than have have that experience, you know? Sometimes you're asked questions that are meant to trap you, you know? So tell me, Larissa, when did you stop beating your husband? You know, how do you answer that? I didn't. (laughs) You didn't stop beating him? (laughs) You know, or you didn't have a husband. And so I say, tell me, Larissa, when did you stop beating your husband? Oh, that's good. Thank you. You know, sometimes you're trapped in situations you don't want to be in. Other times you walked into a situation you shouldn't be in. I I know that I'm the only one in the room that has ever gotten a little angry and resorted to a, a language that was not other tongues. It was another language. My daddy called it French. Though he didn't speak French at all. He always said, excuse my French. I don't know how the French got that. I know, I know that if we could see the tape rolling through your mind, we would never see an act of violence. We would never see a sinful, monstrous beast raging on the inside of you truth is we know that that's there you know how i know that's there because we know what is in all men and we know what must die that christ live we also know it can't happen through your human effort so what do we do with those moments where we let sin reign in our body and we were not supposed to let sin reign in our body you know there's a great debate among theologians about whether or not paul was speaking about his prior life in romans 6 And in Romans 7, and then he was talking about the new life in Romans 8, they failed to understand the book 
Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all in Christ. And it's about the struggle to war with sin. Are you at war with sin? Are you just out building monuments and you don't even recognize how sinful it is? You know what you call a monument to a sinful man? A tombstone. You know what my tombstone will be? You know why we put tombstones facing the east with an epitaph on them? It was supposed to be your favorite scripture. It was a marker. This guy has fallen down, but he will not stay down. Adonai holds him by the hand. On that great day, a body's coming out of the ground right here. The old spiritualists used to say, when I hear that trumpet sound, I'm coming up out of the ground. Can't no grave hold this body down. Yeah? But a man who has built his life for himself, his life stands as a monument of his idolatry against God. You know, I don't want that, do you? No. I don't want that, do you? No. I don't want that, do you? No. As I was reading through Samuel, an elder in the, the other church that I mentioned earlier reminded me of something. I want to show it to you. Go to 1 Samuel 31. See how you just turn to the right now? That's so easy. If you have a Bible marker, put it in 1 Samuel 31 and then put your other marker in 1 Chronicles 10. I want to show you something about these passages. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pinch them together. So it's 1 Chronicles 10 and 1 Samuel 31. If you look up here, you can hold them just like that. Okay? And then you can see both. I want to read some of this to you. This is from 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchai, Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Y'all pretty well got the point? They're losing a battle. They're losing a battle in a specific place. All the sons and he are dying and he has to turn to an armor bearer and say, kill me. You got it? Turn to First Chronicles 11. Keep your finger in the other place too. In First Chronicles 10. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled from before them. Many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Amminadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Are you noticing something? Is it similar, or is it near exact? It's near exact. Hey, keep going. Uh, Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, and these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. And we go on with the exact same dialogue. Why is the Bible redundant? Well, one of the things that has been said is that Samuel is recording man's view, recording it from the playing field, so to speak, in the midst of the fog of war, writing down everything as it happens. But Chronicles is written from a more heavenly view, a higher view. Not that one's the word and the other's not. They simply are two different perspectives, like, say, the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke. Does that make sense to you? I want to show you something about the end 
of Saul's life. Look at verse 13 of 1 Chronicles 10. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. If you read the end of 1 Samuel 31, it doesn't say anything like that. It just says he was buried under a tamarisk tree. Now, why would that be? God is going to write the last line of your story. Men will see what they see. And do you know what men saw? Men saw that Saul was a king, that Saul was rebellious, that Saul got in a war and died. But God's perspective was this man was unfaithful to me. He would not do what I told him to do. He even went to a medium instead of me. And so I put him to death, not that foreign army. Chronicles records God's perspective and Samuel is recording the -the on-the-ground events. Well, let's carry that forward and see some of the other things that are here. Saul was unfaithful. He died. Go to 2 Samuel 11. When you get there, say there. You're going to want this, I promise. In 2 Samuel 11, put your Bible mark or put your hand. And then put your other hand in 1 Chronicles 20. Say there when you're there. You got them both? You got them pinched together? Check this out. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Is that one of the low points in David's life? You know, he goes on to have Uriah murdered. Is that a low point in David's life? He goes on to pronounce judgment on himself because the prophet Nathan confronts him and talks to him about a parallel situation and David says, you should kill the man who does that. Then Nathan said, you are that man. I'd like you to see how Chronicles records the story. In Chronicles chapter 20. First Chronicles chapter 20. Say there if you're there. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war. Is that similar or is that near exact? Joab led out the armed forces. He laid waste to the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. Joab attacked Rabbah and left it in ruins. David took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was found to be a talent of gold. And it was set with precious stones and it was placed under David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder and we go on and so forth. What what is missing? The whole story about Bathsheba and Uriah is not even there. If If you think, well, they're just not really talking about the same thing. All you have to do is skim 2 Samuel 
11. And you find out that that same crown, the same people in the battle, everything else is exactly the same. There is a redaction here. Redaction means when you take a section of the text out, you abridge the official story. You abridge it for clarity's sake. You abridge it because the author's changed his mind. You abridge it for whatever purpose, but something has been redacted from the story. Have you ever had an event in your life you'd like to just take back? Like, I could just reach out and get hold of that word and wrestle it to the ground before it hit their ears. Because I knew when it came out of my mouth, I was going to have to eat eat a harvest from it that I didn't want. It felt good for less than a half a second. And now, I just am. Had a relationship you'd like to take back? You thought he was the Savior and he was the devil? You had something that just, well, it's made your life a tragedy rather than a victory. Do you really think you're alone? See, the devil likes to do that to you. I'm different than everybody else here. Don't flatter yourself. You're not. Not in perfection and not in uh, degradation are you different. Everybody sitting around you is just as screwed up as you are, I promise. But somehow or another, yours feels unique. Our lives were meant to tell a story. In Genesis 5, those ten generations told a story. In Genesis 29 and 30, those twelve sons' birth orders told a story. In Numbers 2, the 600,000 men's placement told a story. In Revelation 2 and 3, the order and placement of the cities and the churches told a story. Your life is meant to tell a story and it's not over. So, well, it may not be over, Eric, but that has marked me forever. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Read your note under it. It's a famous song for the director of music. A Psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. First words out of his mouth. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. You know why Chronicles does not record David's sin with Bathsheba? Because God had mercy on him and he blotted it out of his record. It's not that it didn't happen. Samuel saw it happen. It's that when God thinks of David, he blotted out those wicked things. When David reached the end of his life, he didn't look back with regret on his life. How could he regret Solomon? Solomon was the king God anointed to rule the earth. How could he regret? He looked back and delighted in what God had done because God blotted those transgressions out. 
Listen to me, church. We live in a time when people have changed God's grace into a license for immorality. If David said, wow, God will blot it out. Let me go find another whore. In fact, too. No, God would have burned him like he did Saul. But the grace of God, according to Titus 2, has appeared for one reason. To teach you to say no to ungodliness. To produce in you righteousness. See, God blotted this out and David was now even more compelled to obey the Lord's voice. So we have two messages in this room. If you are ready to follow the Lord with all of your heart, He will blot out your sin. The other message, if you plan on continuing your sin, your sin will be a monument and your life will be blotted out. Let's, Let's talk for a minute, honest Christian. Why do Christians not dwell in sin? How many parts of the story can you redact before there's no story left? Okay, we remove that chapter. We remove this chapter. We remove that chapter. Pretty soon, you know what you end up with? The year you were born and the year you died. There's supposed to be a story in between there. And that story is supposed to magnify God. You say, well, I don't know how my divorce, I don't know how the death of my loved one, I don't know how the disease I fight, I don't know how the addiction that I'm battling, I don't know how that could glorify God. It glorifies Him when you have surrendered and He succeeds in you. It glorifies Him when people eventually see That one screwed up just like every other person I ever knew, but they've got something going for them. It's like God's got hold of their hand. Church, there is so... You you know, I'm not going to do it. I mean, you, you know me. If we read Psalm 25, you know what you'd hear David say? 7 through 11, he'd say things like, Remember me not according to the sins of my youth, Lord. Remember me according to your loving kindness. David asked the Lord for what he needed, and it was not greasy grace. Do you know why? He follows that up with, for you instruct sinners in your way. You, they put it on the screen. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you are good, O Lord. Sounds like a sales pitch at first. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs whom? See, when you know how badly your story needs redaction, you begin to find restoration. You know, you can remember David and Bathsheba if you want to, but I choose to remember David lopped the head off of Goliath. David united the kingdom of Israel. David received a promise that the Messiah would sit on his throne. David, the greatest king in Israel's history. That's how I remember David. If your life ended today, how would you be remembered? You remember when we tried to recount our generations earlier? You know what somebody's going to remember about you at some point? What your children's names were? Or your children's children's? If you don't have children, then you better find some spiritual children. Because that's what they'll remember. You know? 
Before I knew who Lester Summerall was, I knew who Smith Wigglesworth was because I'd read about him. And then when I realized that Lester Summerall was greatly influenced by Smith Wigglesworth, I have no idea if he had natural children, but I know he had a spiritual one. And I love him for it. Bless the whole world. Your legacy is going to be determined by whether or not you trust the Lord. Do you trust Him enough to let go of your past? This goes on and on and on. I want to put a few on the screen. And I'm going to ask you not to turn. How unusual is that for me? I want you to just see them on the screen for a second. Put Isaiah 43, 25 on the screen. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. Why is it for the Lord's own sake? Yeah, I'm one of those pastors. I literally am asking you, why is it for the Lord's own sake? Nolan, why is it for the Lord's own sake? Wow, put Nolan on the spot. How about Justin? Why is it for the Lord's own sake? Frank, why is it for the Lord's own sake? Spence, why is it for the Lord's own sake? It's his story. Listen to me. Your life is supposed to be his story. Your life is supposed to display his wisdom to the powers in the heavens, his many-sided wisdom. That's why life begins when you no longer run it. Because your life is supposed to be about His story being told even to the powers in the heaven. Whose life is insignificant then? What part of God's story is a mistake? I was very honest with you earlier. There are some bitter waters in here. The only part of bitter waters that need to be in God's story are when He heals them. You know how he healed the bitter waters of Exodus 15? He showed Moses a piece of wood. Not all that unlike a crucifixion post. And he threw it into the waters. And the bitter waters turned sweet. God can sweeten your waters. How how about this one? Jeremiah 31-34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. You know when the Lord remembers your sin no more? When you have been conscious of your sin and come to Him and said, This does not tell your story. It represents my idolatry, and I want it cut out of your book, Lord. I want it cut out of my life, because the life I live, I want to live for you. Then we would have stories of restoration because of reduction. And what a beautiful story that would be to tell. Who would not be encouraged? We're coming to a close here. And I want to tell you that there are scholars who say, you know, guys like Pastor Eric are uh, over-spiritualizing things. In Ezra 9, verse 6 and 7, 
Ezra wrote Chronicles. And people say, you know, because Ezra wrote Chronicles, he cleaned it up. Ezra gave the sanitized version of the story. It's not God's perspective at all. To those people, I say, Oh God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you. My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. For from the days of our forefathers till now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage, think about what that word means, and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Does it sound to you like Ezra wrote Chronicles as a sanitized version, or does Ezra sound like a man firmly in touch with their failure in their sin. See, the skeptic fails to understand God's grace. God's grace is not a license for you to sin again. God's grace is the power to turn away from your sin and He will erase it as if it didn't happen because, hear me, you walked away from it and decided to tell His story instead of your idolatrous lie. See, Absalom's whole life was a lie. It was based on El Huapo. It was based on his beauty. It was based on him being suave. It was based upon his attributes. And so in the end, he got a tombstone as a monument and not one son left behind. Saul's life was a lie. He's supposed to represent God, but he consulted mediums. He leaned on everything but God. So God himself ended the story. You know, not only... Did Ezra write the book of Chronicles? When I say Chronicle, that probably doesn't excite your soul. And that's because that's not what the Hebrew people called the book. It's not what Ezra called the book. It's not what any of the first century Jews called the book. This um, Chronicles in Hebrew is actually Devri HaYamim. It means the events of our days. Have you ever heard that all of your deeds would be recorded in a book? Well, there was one on earth and there is one in the heavens. And the one on earth, a man who trusted him could have a redaction from a part that he didn't like and there could be a restoration. How do you think about the one in the heaven? It's more important than that, though. In your Bible, when you're looking at your table of contents... And you see the order of the books, right? When you're reading them, you go, Oh, well, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You've got to go such a long ways to reach the end, huh? What's the last book in your Bible in the Older Testament? Malachi, that Italian prophet. <laughs> you know what the last book in the Hebrew Bible is, you go Torah, that's the law, Nevim, that's the prophets, Ketuvim, that's the writings. Do you know what the last book in the writings is? It's Chronicles. And in, in Moses, not in Moses' day, in the first century, first and second Chronicles were actually one book just called the events of our days. In the last section of their Bible, section number three, the last book in their Bible. God did not record the transgressions of the faithful. 
Listen to me. I'm trying hard here. I'm not the gentle pastor. This is, this is the well, uh, I, I've missed you. So I want to speak tenderly to you. God writes the last line in your book. Nobody else does. He's the final, hear these words, author and perfecter. <laughs> Think on the word perfecter in the light of a literary work. He'll clean up your story if you just trust him with the details. I don't know how that's not hitting your heart like it's hitting mine. Maybe, maybe you hadn't reviewed your tape enough. Would we have to go 24 hours, 48 hours, or 48 days to find something you would not want put on this screen in front of everybody else? I'm in terrible need of redaction. And I serve a restoring God. I want to show you two more scriptures. They're going to be easy for you. They're in the Newer Testament. You can find them in 1 John. In 1 John 5, I want to talk to you about why your story is supposed to be a victory story. Those of you that your gluteus maximus is screaming at you, I remind you, don't be controlled by the flesh. Don't be a uh, brute beast. In 1 John 5... Look at verse 3. This is love for God to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Is the Christian walk for you burdensome? Are you like a man that's tied himself to a stake, an immovable object, so that he won't go after the things that he desperately wants? Is that what your Christianity looks like? Are you like Ulysses, tied to the mast of a ship, listening to the sound of the sirens, going mad for what your flesh desperately wants? That's you. He wants to change your heart, not just restrain you. He wants your story to not be about a man who longs for the world. He wants your heart to be, he wants your story to be a man who longed to do his will. Christian walk burdensome to you? Do you want to go back to Egypt? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Say that with me. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. When you trust him, trust means that you step when he says step. He ordered your footsteps. He will write a story that you will delight in. Look at the very next verse. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Understand, this word belief is different than you think of it. It's not acknowledged that he is. It is that you live like he is. Does your story proclaim to the world that Jesus should be their, their God and He is your God? He's not just your Savior. He is the Lord of every step of your life. 
because that's the only message that he intended to tell through you. That's it. Everything else is idolatry. That's why Jesus Christ only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. His life belonged to the Lord. Do you sit in this congregation saying, yes, my life belongs to the Lord, but there's no factual evidence? Let me give you a short test. What steps have you taken in the last two weeks that showed you are dying for the gospel? That you are denying yourself. It is like crucifying yourself to do what you did in the last two weeks. And if nothing is coming to mind, then ask yourself, did the Lord take a vacation for two weeks? Are you not nearly as cognizant of His Lordship as you pretend to be with your mouth and your written words on Facebook? It's not my intention to bring you a hard word. It's a life-saving word. To, to, to drown in Him is to find life. To flirt with the waters is to be burned up in eternal fire. I'm not threatening you with hell. If you're not trusting Him, you're already in hell. You're just lying about it. You're already in agony. You're on Prozac in here. You're on antidepressants in here. How could a Christian struggle with depression? Well, the same way we struggle with every fleshly thing, but Jesus Christ is the answer. You don't like that? You don't think, I understand your imbalance? You have a sin imbalance. That's what you have. There's never been a drug that could correct human behavior. If it could, we'd take Jesus' pills like the Catholic Church. But instead, instead, you're going to have to surrender your life. You sit in here, and this is hard for you. It's hard for you to hear about the way life should be. And yet you claim that you are going to spend an eternity in the kingdom of God. You must not want him to be there when you get there. I want to close with you in 1 John, the first chapter. One of the reasons that I like this, if you don't know me that well, if you're getting to know me, I understand why you would like others better. But my favorite people in this church are our elders. And uh, the reason that the elders are my favorite is... Uh, I mean. We've got to be good friends to say it like this, but I'm just going to tell you. They kind of reach that place where they just don't care. They're not playing anymore, you know? Like when you talk to each other, sometimes you're like, oh, hi, how are you? And uh, is everything okay? You don't really care. It's just like it's social graces, right? But when you reach a certain age, you're just like you don't care as much. I did, not that you don't care about people. They just don't filter their words the same way everybody else does. You feeling me yet? Amen. Well, John had been the youngest disciple with Jesus. And he grew up in the apostolic age, which, by the way, has never ended. But he grew up in the apostolic age. And John lived long enough to see those seven churches that began an amazing fire in decline. He wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ and he wrote things like, you're going to have to repent or you'll be blotted out of the book. He wrote things like, you're going to have to repent or I will cast you on a bed of pain. He wrote those things. And because he outlived all of his friends, at the end of his life, 
forgive me for saying it this way, but he just, he cut through all the crap. And he, he brought it down to an elder-like statement that said things like, listen, son, you continue to sin, you're not of God. Where, whereas we're going to argue forever about the nature of grace. John just said, you continue to sin, you're not born of God. Right? He, he really just made it plain. And I want to read you maybe the plainest of all things that I've read that he wrote. You ready for it? This is 1 John, the first chapter, starting in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive who? You can't deceive God. He sees you clearly. He understands your story better than you understand it. It would be a whole lot better to be honest and not honest in the privacy of your home somewhere. When you confess things in private, when you make commitments in private, they're easily disposed of in private. Most of your sin, is it happening in a giant public place while being recorded? Or is it happening in a private place where nobody else knows? Why does the old lady on the interstate flip me off, but in line she stands there and smiles? Because when you think you have anonymity, you are a god to yourself. But in community, there is accountability. So don't tell me, I'm getting it right with God right here in my seat. I'm getting it right with God all alone in my house. I'm getting it right with God somewhere else away from you. Ladies, if you would accept a man who proposes to you in private, who marries you in private, but in public he doesn't, shame on you. You deserve what you get. Let me tell you, God is not like that. We are the bride of Christ. You're either married to Him publicly, you either confess publicly, stand with Him publicly, or you are a whore and not a bride. That's what the Bible teaches. It says, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's not deceived. You're deceived. You know how it shows up? I think I'm a pretty good person. I've loved the Lord all my life. That's a lie for any human being who says it. I don't care what age you are, how long you've been here. You love the Lord all your life. You have branded yourself. You need a tattoo on your forehead that says, I am a monstrous sinner. Because you've never come to grips with the fact that you are an enemy of God. And unless you died in Him and are resurrected in Him, then you don't belong to Him. And how can you say, I love the Lord all my life, unless you're redacting your story? There's no such thing as love the Lord all of your life. That is not what the Bible teaches. You have to be a weak preacher peddling the gospel for profit to say something like that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. If we confess, what is He? If we confess, what is He? You mean He can author a story that you would love? If you can not only admit you were wrong, but do so in a way that forever commits you to a changed course, what is He? Faithful. What else is He? And just. And what else will He do? He'll forgive us our sins. And what else? Purify. Let us get this straight. What is your part in this? 
coming to grips with the Samuel version of your story. Your part in this is coming to grips with the fact that you have sought out counsel that was not His. You have gone your own way. You have taken in Christ the anointing of God for granted. So that your loving God can be faithful to His storyline and say, you know what? I will help you. I will remove that portion of the story in my chronicle. I will remove that portion and I will teach you to not do that anymore. That glorifies God. That makes Him the author and the perfecter of your salvation. But the idea that because you prayed a magic prayer or ate a cracker or were christened or any other thing that you can continue to go your own way? Read the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy. It says, The man who hears the words of this blessing and it thinks to himself, I can invoke a blessing on myself and continues to go his own way. Do you know what Deuteronomy says? I will never be willing to forgive that man. Listen, he's Lord of all of your life or he's Lord of none of it. Amen. Period. Go to a church because the pastor's good looking. Obviously, it's not this one. Go there because you like their children's programs. Go there for whatever self-serving, carnal reason that you go. There is one reason to go meet with the brothers. It is to be in the accountability of God's story on a collision course with the author so that you can say, will my next step fulfill your next word? Is this the direction you... Take hold of my hand. Oh, man, we're about to stand to our feet.